2 Timothy 3, 14-17 You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Good evening. It is good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We are so thankful for your presence and your desire to worship God and to study from His Word. You are certainly an encouragement to me, and I hope that we are able to spend time together building each other up in the most holy faith as we are going to be considering some things about God's Word tonight. We have been in the midst of a series on biblical authority. And over the past several weeks, we've been talking about that. And we're going to step away from that series per se tonight. But we want to still think about the Bible in, in a way that I believe is extremely important because we can talk about Bible authority as much as we want to and as, as deeply as we might want to and as often as we might want to. But there still comes another question that we have to ask legitimately so is why do we even talk about Bible authority? Why do we talk about Bible authority? Why is God's Word an authority for our life? That is something that I want us to think about some tonight. I'm so glad that you're here. hope that you will take out your Bible and study along with us this evening and as we think about some of these things. As maybe you remember as, if, as a parent, you were uh, dealing, talking to your children about something and you told them no. that No, you can't do this or no, you can't have that. And probably if you're a parent, if you're like me, at least your, your favorite question that just causes you to roll your eyes is the question why. When your children ask why, why can't I have that? Or why, why do we do it this way and not that way? And I remember asking that, child, that question as a child myself, and I remember vowing to myself that I'm never going to give that, that standard answer that every parent gives, right? Because I say so, right? Because it, that's usually what you have to give at some time. I remember as a child, and I'm not going to give that Well, guess what? I, I've given that answer plenty of times. But... I do think it is important for us to ask that. That's not a bad question. Uh, out of the mouth of babes, they teach us something. And they teach us that understanding why is important sometimes. And we don't want to have a blind faith. We don't want to just say, well, I believe the Bible, and so it all must be right and all must be well. So it's the only thing that we go by just because I've been told that I must go by it. We want to understand that the Bible is authoritative because it is from God. It's much more than a storybook. And even though people treat it that way, people think of it as a, a, a book full of myths and fables. And that they're just good stories that maybe have some good moral teaching and that Jesus might have been just a good moral philosopher. But I believe we have to understand as Christians that the Bible is much more than that. 
It's much more than just a, a, a book of stories or myths or fables. They, they might tell a story, but they also have an inspired message from God, from the God of heaven. And the Word of God is supposed to transform us. And it prescribes for us in the Gospel the remedy for sin. And it is helpful for us and beneficial for us in every matter that we might face. And one of the most basic principles of Christianity is an affirmation that the Bible is authoritative. And thus we want to consider the importance of biblical authority in today's study. And as... Well, oftentimes when we talk about Bible authority, what we do, and as we have been the past several weeks, we talk about how to establish Bible authority. How we go about establishing scriptural authority for the things that we do and that God tells us to do something or that God shows us how to do something or God implies that we are to do something. And we need to talk about how we go about establishing authority. Those are important things that we have been doing over the past several weeks. And we're not going to go into great depths tonight about doing about how to establish Bible authority because I hope that you have learned or have been reminded of some of those things over the past uh, month or so as we've been discussing it in our series on biblical authority. But we understand that this is how you go about establishing Bible authority but tonight our question is different. Tonight our question is, why do we even believe the Bible is authoritative? It's something that is a different question. It's a, a, of a different shade, if you will. But it's an extremely important question. Because we understand that we have to have some kind of authority or we have to have some kind of guide that if there is a God, then He has given us certain things that would be beneficial for us. That He has given us things that would help us. That is the God He has ordered and He has created. And in how He has ordered things, He has become a God who reveals Himself to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the 14th chapter, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth about the nature of our worship services and how they ought to be conducted, and how all things ought to be done decently and in order, he tells us something about God. And that the reason that our services are structured in such a way, he says in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And one of the things that he keeps emphasizing is that worship is about edification. And then he roots all of this in the nature of God, that God is a God of peace, not a God of confusion. And that we come together, we talk about the Bible because we are seeking to learn, we are seeking to draw closer to God. And as God who has revealed something to us, we want to understand that, we want to give it its proper place, and we understand that we can understand the Bible. The book of Ephesians is very clear in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3 and in verse 4, the Apostle Paul, he talks about as he is writing down these things. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And so you can read the Bible and you can understand it. It's meant to be understood. That is how God has 
communicated to us. But why do we think the Bible is that particular form of communication? Are there other books that would rival the Bible in terms of it being from God? No, we understand that, I believe, and we, we believe and confess that the Bible is God's Word. And as we oftentimes will stress the need for having biblical authority for how we worship or how we practice certain things in, in the work of the church or understanding the plan of salvation, we understand that authority is inherent. It is needed. Every organization needs a standard of authority. Schools have a student handbook with a dress code. Businesses have the same. Sports are organized with rules or, and officials who enforce those rules. Churches and, and religion is no different. We need some kind of standard in, for authority that we can appeal to, that we can have. But why do we choose the Bible as that authority? And I believe the Scriptures present for us a few reasons that we can consider tonight. And the first one that I want us to think about this evening is that it is inspired by God. That is the word that is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God. That comes from a Greek word that literally means God breathed. That word inspiration. It is the God breathed message. That whenever you think about breath, and it is necessary for speech and words and vocabulary, that breath is what supplies that. Wind is what makes it possible. And that's why you might say Sean's long-winded because he'll, he can talk a lot. That is what the Bible is. It is God's message. It is breathed out. It is God's Word to us. It is inspired. And that it has come from God. And you think about the importance of that. That's nothing to blink at. That's something that is extremely important. That when we read the Bible, that this is the product that has been sent from God Himself, revealed by the Holy Spirit. And so how much of the Bible is inspired? Well, there are people who will think they know which portions of the Bible are inspired and which portions are not. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he had a very different kind of view of the Bible in which he cut out uh, in many sections many of the miracles and things of that nature that did not seem to fit a naturalistic explanation. That something that would, that would come about by nature. He didn't like some of those sections. And so he said, well, the Bible's a good book, but I'm going to cut out these sections that I don't like, that, that, that don't seem to compute that they would have come about in a natural way. Anything miraculous, let's to cut it out. So how much of the Bible is really inspired by God? Well, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew the fourth chapter, in Matthew chapter four, and whenever he was fasting in, in the wilderness for 40 days and for 40 nights, you remember that Satan came to Jesus and he told him that if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Remember how Jesus replied to him? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy in verse four. 
But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that comes from God is inspired. That's something that Jesus, I believe, firmly was convinced. That every word that comes from God is inspired. Even if it contains some things that are a little bit difficult for us to understand or some things that may not seem to fit our naturalistic inclinations or explanations. Like Thomas Jefferson cutting out miracles uh, from the Bible. Those are things that may seem to be a little bit different. Jesus, whenever He was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, just the next chapter over, in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, He's talking about why He came and His purpose in coming. That He came to fulfill the law. And He says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus had a, an appreciation for even the smallest of details that are contained in the Word of God. The smallest of details. And I believe that's one reason that in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, and as the Apostle Paul was writing in, to the churches of Galatia, in Galatians chapter 3, that Paul he makes a very particular kind of argument just based on grammar and whether a word is considered a plural word or a singular word. You think about getting down to the nuance, the, the very fine print of Scripture and this, the, the tense of a verb or a word. That's what Paul does in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ was something that Paul was very particular about. Jesus, again, makes a very particular kind of grammatical argument in that he believed that every word, even the verb tenses, were inspired by God. And in, in Paul learned it from Jesus because in Matthew chapter 22... In Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was being questioned about the nature of the resurrection, and the Sadducees had come to him and they thought they had given him, they thought they had stumped him, really. And Jesus tells them, No, you are mistaken. You don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God in regards to the resurrection. And he says in verse 31, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now that may not seem all that uh, wowing of an argument, but that is a quotation from the book of Exodus when Moses was speaking with God at the burning bush. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And that verb tense, I 
am. That's a present tense verb, isn't it? That's present tense. I know this gets particular, but Jesus, this is an argument that Jesus is making, and He's making it about the resurrection, and He says, by the time you get to reading about Moses, Abraham had been dead for nearly 400 years. So how in the world can you use a present tense verb, I am the God of Jacob, or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They are still in existence. They were with the Lord. And even though they had been dead for a long, many number of years, they were still in some form of existence. And that's Jesus' point. That He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus understood that every word is inspired by God. Every word that has come from God is inspired and it is full of truth. That's one reason why you can believe the Bible. That every word has come from God. And it is a message from God. And it is something that is extremely important even to the smallest of details. Another reason that you can believe that the Bible is our authority is that it has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been God's messenger in which the Apostle Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and he really begins at the beginning of the chapter talking about the nature of the Gospel and how he was preaching it, not in any kind of persuasive way necessarily, that he was not trying to come to them with words of wisdom, but that he came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He's saying that the Gospel is God's power. And so he's arguing that we speak God's wisdom, that the apostles, that they are expressing the wisdom of God, that they are preaching that. And he goes on in verse 8, this wisdom, which none of the rulers of this age have understood, for if they understood it would they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Just stop right there with me for a moment. You don't know what is on my mind unless I speak it. Unless I tell you. And you will, I won't know what is on your mind unless you tell me. Now, I might be able to pick up on some clues, body language, things like that, but there's still some form of communication that I have to have to be able to understand what you're thinking. 
if we are going to understand the mind of God, it's going to come across in the same way. He has to communicate it to us. He has to reveal it to us. He has to tell us. He is not leaving us out here so that we have to play a guessing game. Of, oh, I wonder what we have to do. It's not throwing darts in the dark. And so Paul says that no one is going to know the thoughts or the mind of God unless God has revealed it to us. And you think about that. We need to be so thankful that the Bible is inspired by God and that it has been revealed to us. That the Holy Spirit has played a part in that. He goes on in verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. He concludes the chapter of, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is trying to convey that we had the Gospel. And when we had the Gospel, we have God's revelation. We have His will that is expressed to us. Peter makes the same kind of claim in, first, in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, and in verse 19, he says, So we have the prophetic Word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We're going to come back to that word here in a minute. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture is one is a matter of one's own interpretation. That word, and we sometimes toss around. Well, that's just your interpretation. If, if we hear something that you know, an explanation of Scripture that we don't really like, that just doesn't well, so we say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, you've probably heard that in in discussions with people. That's just your interpretation. That's just your thoughts. That's just, just your opinion. That's not exactly how Peter is using the word interpretation here. What he means by that is that, there, that it did not originate or come from man's imagination. What Peter is doing as he is writing this epistle, he is saying that this has come from God. That I did not originate this. This, these thoughts, this message, this plan, all the things that you read about in Scripture uh, from Genesis onward, they did not originate with the human author. That is his point. That's why he says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That... The Holy Spirit 
has guided these men to write down what we have in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit moved these men in revealing the mind of God. And it's not that the Spirit took over these, uh, these men as if they were in some kind of trance, like with eyes glazed over and then they just started writing. It's not that at all. You read, uh, you have four very different accounts of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can see that they all emphasize particular things or different things, slightly different things. While they tell each of the, maybe some of the same stories, they put a different emphasis on those stories. And you, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're all they're very similar, but then you read the Gospel of John and it stands in stark contrast, just the way in which it was written. They were all men of faith. They were all apostles or, or followers of Jesus. They were all inspired by God and the Holy Spirit. But God is able to use different people with their own experiences, with their own different nuances, and with their own different talent and ability. And He was able to use those men. He gave them the thoughts and the words to express themselves while maintaining their own unique perspective and personal experiences to aid them in writing. You can read the letters of Paul for instance. And in Paul's epistles, he oftentimes refers back to things that only he could say he did, right? In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, that he, he's acknowledging that, yes, I killed Christians, I imprisoned them. Peter and Jude couldn't write that. They didn't do that. You see, just because something was inspired and revealed by the Holy Spirit didn't uh, mean that they were somehow lost all their mental faculties of their own personal or unique experiences. But the fact is that the Bible has been revealed by the Holy Spirit that God used men to write these things down. So that we can understand it. This process of revelation, it was something that was a mystery. It was hidden, but now it has been revealed so that we can come to know and understand it and appreciate it. That's one reason why we can believe the Bible as authoritative. The third thing that we can, that should give us some confidence is that the Bible claims trustworthiness. The Bible claims to be trustworthy. And that's important. Because you might pick up a fiction novel. Maybe it's the latest John Grisham book or, or uh, Clancy novel or something like that. Whatever your case might be. And while some of those, especially John Grisham, he might write about historical events or historical places and kind of connect those and weave those into uh, a, a work of fiction. He never claims that this actually happened. Right? He doesn't claim that it actually happened. 
The Bible, though, does make such claims. And that it is trustworthy and that you can believe it. And it's that the Bible is not just a book of, of good moral teachings. While it might have good moral teachings, it's making a far uh, more substantial claim that this is trustworthy. That this is something that you need to believe. And there are several instances in the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus that Paul, he makes these kinds of statements. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 15, he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He's trying to convey that this is a statement of importance and a matter of faith and that you can believe it because this is trusted and that there is evidence that supports this. He's not just making a blind statement. He's making a statement of fact. A matter of faith in fact. That goes back to what you can read about in other places in Scripture. He makes the same kind of comment in chapter 3 and verse 1. It is a trustworthy statement talking about the qualifications of elders, that this is God's plan for the household of God. In chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Three times in that letter, he says such. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 11, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. These are statements that are to give us confidence. Whenever Paul might make that kind of statement, now, I know what you might be thinking. You're always suspect, or at least I am, whenever someone says, now, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying to you. I'm always like, okay, that's a red flag. Okay, now I'm like, do I need to be suspicious of what you're about to tell me? But that's not how, that's not how Paul is using this. He is making statements of fact. He's declaring this. That this is something you must believe. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 8, he makes another statement. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. In each of the occasions that Paul uses that statement, that it is a trustworthy statement whenever he is saying this is a faithful statement, he is saying this is something that is foundational. It's something that you must believe. It's something that you must accept and you must practice it. Can you think of any other book that really makes those kinds of claims? There's very few of them. Certainly not fables or myths. They don't make those kinds of claims. But the Bible does. And that sets it apart. That makes it unique. That puts it in its own unique category. Well, there might be other books that are religious books, and 
even that are followed by people in which other religions, maybe they claim some kind of trustworthiness. It still puts them in a unique category of, of book. And so we have to begin to weigh the evidence, and that's a whole other kind of discussion. But the Bible claims trustworthiness, and that is something that makes it unique, and that is something that I think can give us a great deal of confidence in it. And then fourth and finally this evening, the Bible is extremely accurate. in ways that might even surprise us. Turn with me to the book of Acts in Acts chapter 15. This might seem extremely subtle, and we've already seen and noticed in other places that subtle subtlety, even in verb tenses or things of that nature, uh, whether a, a word is a plural or a singular, now, those things are important in the study of Scripture. The Bible is, is extremely accurate, even in small details that we can easily just gloss right over. Acts chapter 15 and in verse 2, to remind you of the context of what's going on in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had just finished their missionary, their first missionary journey in which they had established churches in many Gentile regions. And they had established these new churches and many Gentiles had come to faith. And then there begins to be a debate in the church about the matter of circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas, they had come back to the church at Antioch, which was north uh, in the northern region. It was north of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15 and in verse 2, it says that when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Now, I'm from Arkansas, I'm from the South, and grew up in the South all my life. And so these rules don't always apply, uh, especially down there. But if you go... South, you know, back home we'd probably say, even if you're going south, we'd probably say, yeah, you're going up to, you know, Houston or something like that. We'd say, or you're going up to Dallas, even though that doesn't make any sense geographically, because we're going, that's going south, right? It's not going up. That's how we speak in the south. These guys aren't southerners. They're not, in, you know, in south of the United States. And yet they say, Paul and Barnabas, we're going to send you south, but you're going to go up to Jerusalem. The reason they said that was because of the geography of the area. Because even though they might have been north in, in Antioch, they were still going to have to travel up mountainous and hilly regions to go up to Jerusalem. Again, that's something that if we know nothing about the geography of the area, that we could gloss right over that and think nothing of it because we kind of speak that way sometimes. Or at least I've grown up speaking that way. 
But even in the smallest of details concerning geography, there is accuracy. Then you think about the scientific claims that the Bible makes. And it's not even claiming anything necessarily. It's just taking these things for granted because it was understood far beyond, far before we actually understood them ourselves through any kind of modern means. But in the book of Job, in Job chapter 26, in Job chapter 26, and in verse 7, as Job is speaking with amongst his friends, he says in verse 7, talking about God and how God's greatness is so unimaginable, he says, He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Just that statement that he hangs the earth on nothing. If you do any kind of research, you could just do Google search or something and you could see that there were so many myths surrounding how the earth was held up. That uh, Atlas, the man who held the globe on his shoulders, people thought that he that the earth was being held up by somebody or something. Some people even thought turtle that the world was on turtle's back. Those things are just full of myth that people have devised. But what does the Bible say? Job seemed to understand, inspired by God, inspired by the Spirit, he says that he hangs the earth on nothing. And we understand now scientifically that the earth is just there. It's not, it's not being supported or hung by anything else. In the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 40 and in verse 22, again, as he is meditating on God's greatness, and as he says in verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He says that the earth, you notice, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth. That does away with the flat earth society right there, doesn't it? He sits above the circle of the earth. That God is above the earth. And far before we had images from outer space that would give us some idea of the shape of the earth, it is found in Scripture. One of my favorite proofs of of Scripture is the fact that the second law of thermodynamics applies. In science, if you remember the second law of thermodynamics, it's basically that things wind down. Things wind down. And I think that's one of the great arguments against the theory of evolution because what they actually say is that things are winding up. That things only get more complex and and get better and increase over time. But the second law of thermodynamics actually refutes that idea. That things only wind down. That energy, once you begin something, you you take a coin and you start spinning that coin, what happens? It loses energy over a few 
moments. And then it falls down. It doesn't have any energy anymore. Well, the Bible talks about that second law of thermodynamics. It doesn't call it that, but in Psalm 102, in Psalm 102, and in verse 25 and 26, the psalmist says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change. And he now, the psalmist understands that this world is not intended, this creation is not intended to last forever, that we are going to wear down. That plays out in our own life, doesn't it? As we get older, as we age, we, a 30-year-old feels different than a 15-year-old. A 50-year-old feels different than a 30-year-old. An 80-year-old feels different than a 60-year-old. We, we wear out. Our bodies wear down. Things wind down. And the Bible understands those things, even from a scientific standpoint. In the book of Leviticus, another scientific proof that the Bible supports. In Leviticus chapter 17 and in verse 11, Whenever in the book of Leviticus, this is talking about the Day of Atonement and the need for blood sacrifices and why God chose that. He says in Leviticus chapter 17 and in verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. There is that statement at the beginning of, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And we think we understand that, don't we, scientifically? You have to have blood in your body to be living. We understand that, don't we? That's something that we moderns might take for granted very easily. And I say moderns as in in very recent modern medical biological history. On December 14, 1799, the first President of the United States, George Washington, died. He fell ill and died within a 21-hour period. And it's interesting to, to read because people weren't exactly sure like what kind of disease he contracted. They weren't sure what kind of virus it was. I don't think it was COVID-19, but he... He contracted something. And most people that have studied that, historians and otherwise, they don't think it was the disease that killed George Washington. Because his physicians, you want to know the treatment that they used? Bloodletting. And there is they they estimate that within that 21 hour period, they that Washington lost 40% of his blood. No wonder he died. And that was a very common practice that if we spill enough blood, then he's going to lose the disease out of his body, was the thinking. But here we have in Scripture 
Something that teaches us something that it took us a long time to figure out from a medical standpoint. Life is in the blood. Historically, and this is one of my favorite historical arguments because it was one that atheists or agnostics used to use, skeptics used to show that the Bible was inaccurate. In the Old Testament references, Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 17 refers to the Hittites and the Hittite nation. Well, until the mid to late 1800s, there was no evidence from an archaeological or historical perspective of any group that we would call the Hittites. And yet the Bible spoke about the Hittites in great detail. And, and so prior to the 1800s, skeptics and atheists, they used these references to the Hittites to show the Bible's inaccurate. You don't need to believe the Bible. It doesn't it it, it made up this people group. <laughs> and so why are you going to put your, your faith in something that is historically and archaeologically inaccurate that cannot be be held up and tested and proven? Well, I said until the mid to late eighteen hundreds. We didn't have evidence for it. But then, in the, the, I think it was about the 1870s or 1880s, through historical and archaeological discovery, there was a discovery of the Hittite nation. And now, today, you read a commentary or you read... Uh, a historical book or something about back people in the, in the Mideast, there's going to be acknowledgement about the Hittites that it was not made up. That may seem like such a small detail that we just gloss over, we read over those things and we don't think about it. But there, I love this, that here was the argument for an atheist to say, hey, you don't need to believe in the Bible. You're believing in some book full of myths and fables now what does it become? Now it becomes evidence that we were right, doesn't it? I love that argument. Because now it's shifted from, no, it's not an argument against us, it's an argument for us. That the Bible is accurate. The Bible is from God. And even when in smallest of details, as we have looked at tonight, you've been such a good audience. Appreciate following along and thinking about these things. When you read the Bible, you can trust what it says. It is amazingly accurate. We believe the Bible because of what it says, and what it says is proven, and it can be accurate, and it's correct. There may be things that we have yet to discover. That doesn't mean that the Bible made them up. This means we may have not found the evidence for some of those things. Given time, though, we can. I'm confident of it. Because the Bible has always proven to be accurate and correct. And so you can be assured that when you read the Bible, any doubts that are there, they can be silenced. 
Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We will bring this lesson to a close. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the text that we had read for us tonight, as Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue reading the sacred writings in the Scripture, and he reminded him that all Scripture is inspired by God and that it has a purpose. It's profitable for you. That it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He also tells us in verse 15, talking about Timothy's own experience, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. The Bible is able to give you salvation. Because it is a message from God. It can build up your faith. It can give you the confidence you need to believe God exists. And God, the God who exists and the God who created this world, He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for you. The Bible is a book that leads you to salvation. Don't turn away from it. Believe it. We've just been able to scratch just the surface of these things. But you can trust in God's Word. And it's because of those things that we can appeal to God's Word and the Bible as our standard. And we can believe it. We can have confidence in it. And the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Will you be saved today? We hope that if you are not a child of God, that you would come to Christ tonight. That you would clothe yourselves in Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism. Coming in faith and being obedient to the Gospel. Perhaps it is that you have already made that choice, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord. We want to invite you to come back to Him tonight. If we can help you in any way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing? Oh,